Well, hey, doll. Hey, doll. I'm your host, Cynthia. And I'm your host, Paula. And we are Dolls Dolls and and Doom. Doom. Cynthia. Yes? My boyfriend's niece, Megan, requested I do the Angel of Death story. But the scary thing is, there's way more than just one. There are so many doctors or nurses out there who use their position to kill. That is so terrifying. I know, right? We are never more vulnerable than when we put our health in the doctor's hands. So sit back and prepare to be freaked out by just a few stories about the angel of death. (laughs) I may never go to the doctor again. I know, right? (laughs) Thanks, Paula. You're welcome, I think. (laughs) Okay, so first of all, I want to go over who Dr. Kevorkian is because... A lot of these cases, it's said that the doctor or nurse had a Kevorkian complex. So Jack Kevorkian was a pathologist and euthanasia proponent. He campaigned for patients' rights to die by physician-assisted suicide, saying, quote, dying is not a crime, end quote. He was arrested in 1998 for his role in voluntary euthanasia on a patient named Thomas York, who'd been suffering from Lou Gehrig's disease. He was convicted of second-degree murder and served eight of the 10 to 25-year sentence. When I think of Dr. Kevorkian, I don't think of murder. I think of mercy. I personally have no problem whatsoever with that. I agree. Given the right situation. We do it for our animals and it's considered a mercy, but we're going to let our loved one suffer a long Because I know so many people who have been dying for a long time and just like sitting in a chair and can't hear can't see can't speak yeah it's no quality of life right why not let them go peacefully right if that's what they would have wanted right if if they give consent I totally agree I know if it was me and I was dying a slow painful death there would be definitely paperwork saying hey put me out of my misery right and we have do not resuscitates right orders which that means if like you're literally like choking I'm not allowed to help you legally yeah that is a lot that is even worse, I think, than just like an injection or something. So. Right. If you go into, you know, cardiac arrest or whatever, do not resuscitate. Right. Okay, so, st- stand back and just let it happen. I'm all for the Kevorkian thing in that scenario with consent. Right. With consent, I don't see it as a crime. Yeah. Me neither. Well, Kimberly Clark Sanez, also known as Kim Clark Fowler, was a nurse practitioner who lived in Lufton, Texas. She was 34 years old, married and had two small kids. She suffered substance abuse and would steal prescription medication from work. Apparently she wasn't very good at it as she was fired from four different healthcare facilities. Okay, why do you keep getting rehired? (laughs) That's a good question. While working as a nurse at DeVita Dialysis Clinic, there was an unusual spike in patients getting seriously ill during their treatments. Now, a standard dialysis treatment takes four hours, and a patient is hooked up intravenously to a machine that sucks out your blood, removes the toxins, and then pumps the blood back in. This is done three times a week, usually without incident. However, patients were getting seriously ill and going into cardiac arrest. Paramedics were called 30 times in just one month. What? Yeah, which is double the number of calls in the past year. So, obviously, now the facility is on high alert. Clearly, something's going on. Yeah. 
I don't understand why it took 30 times for them to realize something's going on. Right. In just one month. Two, two, two times. If, you know, if you're used to maybe 15 calls a year, that's one a month. Mm, twice. Three times in one month. Right. And I'm like, hmm. Yeah. That's, 30 times. In one, that's like once a day for a month. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, something's going on. Right. People. I, w- I would think after day three, we need to investigate. <laughs> but that's just me. What do we know? <laughs> right. Well, after two patients died, clinical coordinator Amy Clinton was called in to see what was going on. While there, two patients saw Kimberly take a syringe and extract bleach and inject it to two other patients' IV lines. What? Yeah. Yeah. So they immediately told Amy Clinton, one woman saying, quote, I'm nervous right now and worried because she's assigned to me, end quote. Uh. Can you imagine knowing that, okay... Nurse Kimberly is going to take care of me next. And then you see that happen. Well, what were the police called immediately? And well, when she was questioned, she said she was just cleaning out the lines. But that wasn't even standard practice. No, it's not. Right. I'm not even a nurse and I know that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So she was sent home for the day and the equipment that she was handling tested positive for bleach. Candace Lackey, a co-worker of Kim's, testified that Kim was unhappy with her job and expressed her dislike for patients who all happened to have died or coded in the past month. Another coworker, Sharon Dearmont, said Kim was tending to a patient, then went on a cigarette break. But when the patient coded, Kim refused to rush over to help her. Not exactly the type of person that you want helping you. My gosh. And this is a mother. Yeah. Not that mothers are, like, exempt from being horrible people, but, like... I don't know. I, I just feel like women in general are just maternal creatures, regardless right. of whether or not we have kids. Then you actually have kids, and you're going to do this to someone else? Right. That's, oh my gosh. And ignoring a patient when they've coded. It's your job. Literally, a nurse practitioner isn't the first rule to do no harm. Or is that just for doctors? I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Nurses are allowed to do whatever yeah, they want. Nurses, yeah. <laughs> Do whatever you feel like or don't feel like. It's like the, you know, paralegal versus the attorney. <laughs> the nurse is the one doing all the work. Right. And the, the, the doctor. The doctor just swoop in and be like, mm-hmm, yeah, yep, that looks yep, good. That person's dead. <laughs> Next. <laughs> so Kim had direct contact with the five patients that died. Later, a search would reveal on her home computer an internet search for, quote, bleach poisoning and whether or not bleach can be detected in a dialysis line oh my gosh she is an absolute monster then yeah so and, that, and that was two weeks after that she got caught so clearly she thought about it and was like hmm, let me go check this out and make sure i'm not gonna get caught yeah well, you just incriminated yourself yeah she's like totally premeditating these yeah holy cow i hope she's in prison Research by an epidemiologist revealed that Kim was present every single time in which a patient died. On May 30th, 2008, Kim was arrested and charged with two counts of aggravated assault for the incidents on April 28th and indicted for the five deaths that had occurred earlier in April. Prosecutors sought the death penalty, but it was denied. Oh my gosh, maybe she should get some bleach injected in her. All right. She received five concurrent life sentences in prison without the possibility of parole, plus 20-year sentences for the aggravated assaults. Good. Yep, I agree. Donald Harvey was born outside Cincinnati. His family moved to Kentucky when he was little. He grew up poor and his parents fought often. He dropped out of school in ninth grade. At 18, he went on to work as an orderly at Marymount Hospital in London, Kentucky. 
In May of 1970, an 88-year-old stroke victim smeared feces on Harvey, and as a result, he smothered him with a pillow. <gasps> He's almost 90 years old. I know. He didn't know what he was doing. Right. Harvey admitted that over the next few months, he killed other patients out of mercy. However, he showed no mercy, and warning, this next sentence is a little graphic. To one patient who was an 80-year-old man, he punctured his bladder by shoving a wire coat hanger up through his catheter. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's awful. And these are old people. Right, yeah. The first guy was 88 and the other guy was 81, so. I find that worse just because it's like... You know, you get to an age, or a lot of people get to an age where they can't take care of themselves. We know that. And where they're, you know, vulnerable like kids. Right. So I just think it's even worse. Like, how could you do that? Right. And then also, to look at it this way, you've lived your whole life, but then once you're in your 80s, this is what happens to you? I've often thought that. Like, we live our whole lives to get a house and to, like, build these dreams. And then at the end of our lives, it's all taken away. Right. You go live in a assisted living facility, and you can't drive, and you can't. kind of sucks. Or the people that go off to war and then they come home and they die in a car accident. Yeah. You know, it's like, really? I survived all this other stuff, but this is how I'm going out? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So Harvey moved around to different hospitals, including the Veterans Administration Medical Center in Cincinnati. He worked there from 1975 to 1985. He claims to have killed at least 15 patients using different methods, such as asphyxiation, rat poison, arsenic, and cyanide. Outside of work, he began dating a man named Carl Howler, but he suspected Carl of cheating, so he began poisoning him by putting small amounts of arsenic in his food. Not enough to kill him, but enough to make him too sick to leave the house that they shared. <laughs> it's not funny. I'm you know, laughing because like it's you like... When you're, when you're jealous. <laughs> right. I'm just laughing at the insanity. I laugh when I'm uncomfortable, people. I, okay. Whatever happened to communication? That's all I'm going <laughs> right. to say. Trust. Right. You know, trust. Yeah. Eventually, the jealous got to Harvey, and he did kill Carl. And according to Carl's father, they're two neighbors as well. In 1985, the hospital did a search of Harvey's locker, and they found hospital supplies, a book on the occult, and a loaded revolver. Okay, so like, what do you mean, like, the occult? Okay, so I actually had to look it up. And I'm just going to quote word for word because I have no idea how to put this in my own words. So the definition of the occult in the broadest sense is a category of supernatural beliefs and practices which generally fall outside of the scope of religion and science. Encompassing such phenomenon involving otherworldly agency and mysticism, spirituality, and magic. It can also refer to supernatural ideas like the extrasensory perception so, so, like, Satanism, maybe? Or maybe aliens or just, yeah, just otherworldly things. Okay. So, in February of 86, Harvey began working at the Daniel Drake Memorial Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio. So, over the next 12 months, he'd murdered dozens. And again, claiming it was mercy killings, saying, quote, I was doing what was right. I was putting people out of their misery. I hope that if I'm ever sick and full of tubes... Someone will come and end it. End quote. By shoving a coat hanger. Up yeah, his I think that should be done to him. Absolutely. How merciful. Yeah. However, later he would contradict himself and say it gave him a sense of power and control. And side note, that's really what it's all about: is the god complex. 
you know, the I can end your life whenever I choose. Right. You know, it's a psychological rush. In 1987, patient John Powell was in a horrible motorcycle accident and on life support. Harvey killed him and almost got away with it, but during the autopsy, the forensic pathologist smelled burnt almonds. And what does that mean? <laughs> Paula, you know? I have no idea oh, what does that come mean. Come on, come on. What does that mean? Cyanide. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, you didn't? Is that common knowledge? Well, I thought to, to <laughs> crime junkies like us, we, we knew, but... Oh, no, I didn't know that. All right, well... Okay, so it smells like burnt almonds. Burnt almonds. almonds. Cyanide. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, good to know. Now I know. Yeah. So they called the police, and the whole hospital staff was questioned. After this, and the many other suspicious deaths, Harvey's name was brought up. He actually agreed to take a polygraph test. But the morning that he was scheduled to take it, he called in sick. Later, a book on how to cheat a polygraph machine was found in his house. <laughs> Coincidence? <laughs> you decide. Don't you have one of those no, laying I, around? I don't. How to cheat a polygraph machine for dummies? No. Oh, I guess it's just me and... You and it? Harvey. Yeah, me and Harvey over here. <laughs> Initially, he was only facing one count of first-degree murder... But during a news broadcast, the anchorman said he wondered how many more deaths at Drake Memorial Hospital Harvey was responsible for. After that, anonymous tips came flooding into the station. Many from the hospital staff who said they had filed complaints about Harvey, but were told to keep quiet. That's awful. That's I know. That's even scary. worse. Yeah. That's even worse. Because like, people you know. are trying to do the right things, but then they're getting I hate that. I hate quieted. the politics yes. of it, just in general. Absolutely. Harvey's court-appointed lawyer, Bill Whalen, asked Harvey if he'd killed more patients than just the one. And Harvey said, yes, it's an estimate of about 70 people. Whalen said, quote, when I heard him say estimate, I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> Poor lawyer. Ay, ay, ay. I know, give or take. Yeah, it's an estimate. In 1987, in Hamilton County, Ohio, Harvey pled guilty to 24 counts of murder and was sentenced to three consecutive life terms. In November, he went to Kentucky and pled to nine more counts of murder and was sentenced to life in prison plus 20 years. He was eventually found guilty of 37 murders, and after conviction, he admitted to killing up to 50. But the sad part is, we will never know the actual number. And sometimes when you go to prison, depending on your crime, the punishment can continue. And for Harvey, it did. In March of 2017, he was found beaten to death oh. in his cell. He had skull breaks and brain injuries. He was 64. Honestly, I'm surprised it took that long. Yeah. I mean, I'm not for violence of any kind. Right. I'm not saying it's okay, um, but, but I'm just surprised. Yeah. Given everything he did. I still just am thinking, gosh, how vulnerable are we when we are in that position? I had to get my wisdom teeth removed in April mm-hmm. I'd never been put under before for anything and I was shaking crying oh. scared because just knowing how vulnerable I would be like oh, yeah. I was like and it was you know what if I wake up and all my teeth are gone what if I wake up uh pregnant right right <laughs> what you never I, know right what if I I was just so 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 scared and of course, everything went fine and smoothly, and all, all the right teeth were taken. The, you know, <laughs> right. I'm not pregnant, but <laughs> I was just so scared because you are literally so vulnerable. Your life is in someone else's hands, right? And 
I just can't imagine being in that situation and having a horrible person on the other side. Totally agree. It's terrifying. It is. All right, so there's one more. Efren Saldivir was born and raised in Brownsville, Texas. After graduating from the College of Medical and Dental Careers in Hollywood, California, he began working as a respiratory therapist at Glendale Adventist Medical Center. He worked the night shift, which had fewer staff on duty. While working there, he killed patients by using a paralytic drug which caused respiratory problems and cardiac arrest. Drugs were found in his locker at work, such as Valium, Morphine, and succinylcholine chloride, which, if administered improperly, can be deadly. Not to mention the fact that no one other than the doctor is supposed to be in possession of these drugs. His co-workers described him as lazy and standoffish. One nurse said there was a male patient who was in bad shape, and one night an alarm went off in his room. She rushed in, and Efren was standing in the room. She began CPR and said, help me, but he just stood there put a finger to his lips and saying, shh, you know, like, oh be gosh. quiet and let him die. Oh, how creepy. But the good news is someone else also heard the alarm and came running in and the patient was saved. Efren had what he called a magic syringe and he prided himself on his own standards of determining who should die. For example, they had to look like they were ready to die. They had to be unconscious and they had to have a do not resuscitate order. After multiple deaths and finding drugs in Efren's locker, he was questioned and it quickly turned into an interrogation. He confessed to killing over 50 patients, but the numbers went up since he was moonlighting at other hospitals. He talked about how angry it made him to see patients kept alive, you know, instead of feeling guilty. The person giving him the polygraph asked if he considered himself to be the angel of death. He said yes. They placed him under arrest and had 48 hours to get hard evidence, or they had to set him free. Investigators obtained a search warrant and searched his home and found about 100 porn tapes and drugs, and a printout of a diary-type log where he listed himself as Dr. Kevorkian. However, it still did not prove anything. They still needed physical evidence, and now they had to put a confessed killer back on the streets. Efren soon went missing. Police set up space on hospital property to continue their investigation. They gathered medical records, looking in the nurse's notes for anything that had a patient's heart speed up and drugs were present in the body. Patients that were stable one minute, then found dead the next. Specifically patients that were in Efren's care. Those cases were red flagged. They even bought medical dictionaries so they could understand the medical terms. They presented these cases and felt they should be exhumed. And they had to be because the drugs broke down into chemicals that were found naturally in the body. There weren't even protocols for testing this drug back then. So on March 27, 1998, newspapers read, therapist admits to 50 mercy killings. And as you can imagine, people were enraged to learn their loved ones were murdered in their hospital beds. Media went to Efron's home and of course his family claimed his innocence. A man named Larry Slagle saw the report on TV and he called the police and told them that his mom was in the hospital from the dates they gave. His mom had respiratory problems and she went into the hospital and was there for about a couple weeks. She also happened to be a DNR, do not resuscitate. Larry visited his mom on New Year's Eve. She was sitting up and talking, she was stable, and the plan was to go home the next day. However, the next morning, there was no pulse, 
no breathing. And even though it seemed weird, it never crossed Larry's mind that his mom could have been poisoned. Larry was not the only one who called. They got about 200 messages with similar stories. The police investigated them all and cleared 39 of them. Okay, just think about that. Out of 200, only 39 were not murdered. That's crazy. That's spine chilling. I think maybe he did think he was doing the right thing. I mean, he wasn't. In his own twisted way, right. yeah. He obviously wasn't doing the right thing. But for, you know, he had these parameters. They have to be unconscious. There has to be a do not resuscitate. And to just that on face level, I kind of, all right, if you're unconscious and you have a do not resuscitate and you're just going to lay there for months or months or months or years. Yeah, I can, I, I can understand why he thought that those were qualifications. Right. I can see that. You still. Still doesn't make it right. No, <laughs> you don't have the authority to do that or decide right. that. But I, I kind of see his mindset in this warped way. Yeah. So Efren eventually came out of hiding and recanted his confession. Of course. Of course. He claimed he was just oppressed and wanted attention. Police monitored him closely as he changed jobs. Several family members of deceased patients cooperated with police on the exhumations because, you know, like the police, the family wanted the truth. Sure. During the whole process, the police used the same lab techs and the same forensic team across the board for consistency. They extracted several tissue samples from each body along with soil samples from each grave. 20 bodies were exhumed and tested. They finally got the evidence they needed. Six out of the 10 had the drug they were looking for. They double-checked the medical records to make sure there was no other reason for the patient to have this in their body. Now they had enough to make an arrest. They knew Efren's schedule since they had been keeping such close tabs on him. They were waiting for him to leave work and followed him by car and pulled him over. He didn't even fight like they thought he would. This time, when they sat down to question him, there was only one thing they needed to know. Why? Efren said it was volume and there were too many patients and he was just thinning out the workload. He never killed on impulse and he never felt remorse. That's the other thing I was going to say, thinking about it. Like, this is awfully high number of people for it to be like mercy killing. Like, you mean to tell me there are like hundreds of people that you feel need your, you know what I mean? Like, I just, I just feel like that's an awful lot for someone who thinks he's just acting on mercy. Yeah. Like, you enjoy this or you have some other kind of motive to do it that many times. And it also makes me wonder, was he really using his methods of determining was he really checking to see oh, if they had a dnr yeah. were there that many people yeah like this but this guy's been in here for two weeks he's got to go right right he's, he's taking up a patient patient bed or room or whatever right. he's got to go because how many people long. don't have a dn i know of one person my whole life who there was one because she had advanced alzheimer's and you know it got to a point where it's like okay at this point a dnr makes sense Right. Because as long as you're alive, you're not, you don't have that quality of life. Mm-hmm. But like, do most people have those? I don't know. I don't know. But after all this research, I do. I never thought I'd need a will. But mm-hmm. I do want some written paperwork after the story that says, you know, if I'm in a certain condition, like if I'm not, if I'm a vegetable, unplug me. If this is going on, then I want assisted suicide. Like, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to right. put my family and friends through my slow, agonizing death I feel like I need to go get paperwork drawn up. So just in case something happens tomorrow, right. then, you know, my loved ones will know what to do. Those are good to have. Those yeah, just in case. Have. Yeah. On March 12th, 2002, Efren pled guilty to avoid the death penalty. He was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences 
plus 15 more for attempted murder. Investigators found 50 suspicious cases in Glendale Hospital. They feel the actual number is way higher. And I strongly agree. I mean, we don't know how many he killed when he was moonlighting in other hospitals. Right. That's so sad. It's frightening. So that's the angel of death story, just to name a few. And if you get anything out of this story, just do your research on your doctor, look up reviews, and if you meet with someone in person and you get a weird vibe, listen to your gut and go see someone else. Right. The, the thing that really, really annoys me when it comes to doctors, and I, I've never worked in a medical facility, but I've worked... Adjacent. Adjacent, yeah. And not physically. Right. <laughs> but like, you know, I've worked... What I've done, I've worked along with doctors. Anyway, I don't like how some of them really it does make you feel like you're a number you're oh just yes. a number yes i felt that as a patient right right yeah that's just working with them sometimes i've seen it and i'm like you literally just don't care about this person you literally don't care and that is very very frustrating because again we're human beings and we go in there scared hurt needing help literally putting our lives in your hands have some respect right and many people like me are just so afraid of the doctor like this is our last option right like, i feel so bad i'm actually coming to the doctor or right. the hospital yeah oh it's scary yeah okay well i thought i would do something a little different for our time to kill okay great okay so i was thinking about like what used to scare me like what really really scared me and okay. i remembered the very first real ghost story i'd ever or scary story i'd ever heard okay I was probably, I don't remember how old I, I was in sixth grade. How old are you in sixth grade? I, I don't know. I have no idea. I went to sea camp in the Florida Keys, and it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Oh my God, I want to go. Oh my gosh, it was so fun. <laughs> I want to go back. Um, it was super fun. We like swam with sharks, wow. and we went trolling, and we played in the Everglades, and like covered ourselves with like mud, and played hide and seek at the Everglades. Fun. And it was so, so, so cool. It, but... One of the things that was the most cool at night, all the girls, there were probably like six of us girls that went and like an equal number of guys and then the chaperones. It was a room probably about the size of this room. It was like a dorm room. Okay. But there were no adults. Nice. Yeah. So it was just the girls and like bunk beds. So of course we stayed up all night talking and of telling course. stories and you know, all this stuff. So one of the girls told this story and oh, it scared me for years. Okay. okay. It's called Thump thump slide Ooh, that sounds creepy okay <laughs> and i think it's one of those that probably a lot of people have heard but relive it if okay. you've heard it let's let's go back in time okay so there was this girl she was babysitting for these two little kids and the parents were going to be gone all night so it was an all-night babysitting job so she didn't really feel like working that hard you know she's a teenage girl so she lets the kids stay up as late as they want they decide they're going to watch some TV, and while they're flipping through the channels, there's a news report that a crazy psychopathic prisoner has escaped from the prison, which is just a few miles down the road, and he's on the loose. So everybody lock your doors and stay inside because this guy is considered very, very dangerous. So, of course, now the kids are, like, freaked out. Of course. It's a little boy and um, his little brother. And so... You know, they're like totally freaked out and, you know, keep bugging the babysitter. So finally she's like, you guys just need to go to bed. Go to bed, lock your door, and leave me alone. Yeah. So they do. They go to bed. 
They go upstairs to their bedroom, lock the door, get in bed. And after like maybe an hour or so, they hear this weird crash coming from downstairs. And then they hear what sounds like maybe a scream and then nothing. So they're super freaked out. After a few minutes, they start to hear thump, thump, slide. Thump, thump, slide. And as they listen, it's getting closer. Thump, thump, slide. And it sounds like it's at the bottom of the stairs. Thump, thump, slide. It's coming up the stairs. Thump, thump, slide. And they hear it come all the way up to the top of the stairs, right outside their bedroom door. And then it stops. They stay huddled under their blankets for the rest of the night because they're so terrified. And the next morning when their parents finally come home, the parents discover the most grisly scene. The babysitter has been hacked to death. This murderer came into the house and hacked her legs off. And she pulled herself up the stairs to try to get to those boys to try to get some help. And the thump, thump slide was her using one arm, thump. The next arm, thump, sliding her body up the stairs, thump, thump, slide. And she died right there at the top of the stairs, right outside the boy's bedroom door. Oh my gosh. Oh. <laughs> that is scary and <laughs> disgusting at the same time. It so terrified me. So that story just like haunted me. It scared me. So then, not much later, I was probably like 13, maybe 14. I was really young. My friend and I got a babysitting job. And it was a single mom who needed a babysitter at home for like 40 hours a week. That's a lot of hours for a 13-year-old. So we divided it up. And it was like from 3 p.m. to like 11 p.m. at night. Okay. So I would do like Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays. She'd do Tuesdays and Thursdays. We'd switch off. So it was a two-story house. It was kind of a big house. It was two little boys. Oh, geez. It was kind of, you know, it was a little bit of a dark house. Like, you know, she was a single mom. It was maybe a little dingy. It was just kind of a creepy house, right? But it was big and two-story. The strangest thing was she would have all of the doors locked, like all of the interior doors locked except for the boys' bedroom and then like just the common areas. So her bedroom door was locked, any guest bedroom doors were locked, all these things were locked. And you know, when you're at a house for eight plus hours and you're 13 years old, you're gonna like look in rooms and stuff like that and you know, see, see where you are, but all the doors were locked, which just made it even creepier, like so scary. And she probably did that so you couldn't go in those other rooms. Right. <laughs> Looking back as an adult now, I'm like, oh, she didn't want us in her personal space. Right. Makes sense. Well, one day my friend called me. It was my friend working. Apparently the mom forgot to lock one of the doors. And when my friend went in to look, it was like her prayer room. She was a different religion. I don't know what religion she was, but it wasn't our religion. And we'd never seen anything like this. There was literally like an altar and candles and like little statues that I would say were probably like growing up, we would have called them idols. I don't know what they were, but this was her prayer room. And again, we'd never seen anything like this. And it 
is a little creepy, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially to a 13-year-old. Yeah. Looking back now, I'm like, oh, this was her sacred space, and yeah. here we are invading it. Right. But <laughs> at the time, it was like, oh, my gosh, this person is weird. So that sets up the scenario, right? We're in this okay. scary house, little weird. We're just kind of creeped out. Well, one night there's a bad thunderstorm and I just keep hearing noises and I had to put the boys to bed. And so they were upstairs in their bedrooms and I was downstairs creeped out and I heard this like strange noise coming from the boys room. And of course I have to go check on it. It's my job. I'm the babysitter. I have to watch these kids. So I go up the stairs. I'm totally freaked out. I walk into their room it looks like they're sleeping in their beds. I walk over closer to try to like make sure they're actually breathing. And as soon as I do, their beds are right next to a window. A flash of lightning <gasps> lights up the room. And there, right in front of me on the floor, is a body and a face <gasps> staring at me. It was, um, you know, like the little My Best Bud dolls? Oh, yeah. <laughs> What were they my called? Buddy. Yeah, my buddy, whatever. It was one of those. Oh my god. <laughs> the kids were fine. Yeah. Everything was fine. But of all the times for the room to light up with lightning, it was of it course was right then moment. when I'm on high alert. Right. Everything was fine. That's my story. Oh my god. <laughs> I still remember that. It was terrifying. I would have been terrified too. Yeah. So at this age. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> now just the thought of babysitting somebody else's kids is oh, terrifying. Yeah, that's, that's scary all by itself. <laughs> I have my own. Anyway, that's my time to kill for you. So Wow, that was that was a good one. Yeah. Nice and creepy. Yeah, it was creepy for a thirteen year old for sure. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Hey, thanks for listening, and go ahead and check out our website for pictures and for links corresponding to each episode at dollsanddoom.com. You can follow us on social media, leave us a comment, and stay alive so you don't end up on the wrong side of the grass. That's right. Bye! Bye.